Hey everyone, this is Caleb, and today I am so honored that you have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me on the Learner's Corner podcast. And on this episode, I am joined by Nathan and Susanna Fur to talk about their brand new book called The Upside of Uncertainty, a guide to finding possibility in the unknown. And well, I'll get into what got me interested in, in that in just a second. However, if this happens to be your first time listening to The Learner's Corner, I do want to let you know about a couple of things. And the first thing is this, is that we want to create a place, a safe place to have difficult conversations. Another thing is that we truly believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone, regardless of whether or not we agree with them 100%. And the third thing is that we believe that we can learn from anything and from everything, regardless of what that thing is, whether that's something serious or something trivial. And the last one is this, is that we want to work to become the mentor that we had in our life or the mentor that we wish that we had in our life. And today we're going to be talking about uncertainty and with uncertainty can come a lot of different emotions, including anxiety in that. And just, just a lot of fear that could come around that as well. And so how do you deal with that? That's what we're going to talk about today. And for some of us, Maybe, maybe we have learned how to pick up some of these skills and they will be uh, useful for this. And maybe you find yourself in a situation to where you do need to, you are facing a lot of uncertainty and you're trying to figure out how to navigate through that. And for others of you, maybe someone really close to you is going through uncertainty. And regardless of whether, wherever you find yourself today, we're going to talk about some things that will be able to help us just along the way in that. Now, if you have uh, an idea, a subject, or a person that you would love us to talk with or you know learn about on the podcast, please reach out to me at learnerscornerpodcast at gmail.com, and I would love to hear from you of just what you're learning from as well, whether that be from one of the episodes that we've covered in the past or this episode or anything that you're learning in general. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Nathan and Susanna Fur, and then we can jump into the conversation. So Nathan Fur is a professor of strategy and innovation at INSEED in Paris and a recognized expert in the fields of innovation and technology strategy or innovation and technology strategy. Professor Fur earned his PhD from Stanford University where he studied how innovators commercialize their ideas. His best-selling books include The Innovator's Method, Leading Transformation, and Innovation Capital. He is an InnoCite Fellow and has been nominated for the Thinker's 50 Innovation Award and works with leading companies such as Google, Microsoft, City, and many others. Now, Susanna is an entrepreneur, designer, art historian, and contrarian. She founded a women's clothing line inspired by her research in the intricate embroidery Dutch women uh, found the time to painstakingly render on their otherwise unadorned uniforms details that are often invisible to all but the wearer and its significance in their daily lives. She also design, or founded a design firm that provides commercial design services to retail and commercial operations. And as I mentioned a little bit earlier, their new book is called The Upside of Uncertainty, and we are going to dive into that conversation right now. 
Well, Nathan and Suzanne, I'm so excited for the both of you to be on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and just as we're getting started, you know, you both have co-authored this book called The Upside of Uncertainty. And um, anytime that I, you know, talk with someone who's created a work of art, or in, in this case, you know, a book, I love hearing the story behind it. And so I would just love to hear for both of you of what drew you to to this type of work and learning about that. Well, I mean, part of it started, so I, I'm a professor in a business school, um, I did my PhD at Stanford. And uh, so for the last 20 years, I've been uh, interviewing innovators and creators. And and one thing you discover right away is that while we all get uh, excited about new things and breakthroughs and, and creative uh, inspiration, it only comes after facing uncertainty. And, and I actually kind of struggle with that, to be honest. I, I kind of like certainty. I like you know, it's hard for me sometimes to take a risk. And so I became really curious, wh- how did they do it? D- is there something I could learn from them about that could help me be better at, at facing the unknown? And and Susanna is a, is a creator and an entrepreneur herself. So she she's somebody who, who is also good at it. And um, we kind of came together and joined forces on it because she brought this really interesting perspective on, you know, the, the how creators do it, how designers do it, and and also a, a lot of intuitive wisdom about it. And, and I don't know, maybe you want to say more about me. Sure. I just love so much what we personally have been able to do when we've decided not to do the safe route and not to do the controlled, obvious path. And uh, so that was just something that we sometimes chose and sometimes didn't choose. But uncertainty has played a huge role in our family life. And um, it became really clear, like, oh, if we joined forces on this, we would write a book that maybe would reach more people. So because I don't have a business background other than being an entrepreneur. I mean, my and my my entrepreneurship was a company. You know, I did a design. I, I designed clothing for women. I had it made in Madagascar. I had, my fabric was from London. So like there was some sourcing and some some importing and some tricky stuff. But really, it was really always about uh, how do we do things that really matter to us and like this meaningful stance? And then Nathan, with all of his entrepreneurship experience, studying it from more an academic angle, I guess we just really came to yeah. love what we could do together to for the book. So you know, I would say the the big thing you did is you really saved it from becoming a business book in the sense of, you know, it's so easy for me to fall into that kind of talking head, you know. Elon Musk does this or Jeff Bezos does that or into it, you know, just kind of like blah, blah, blah. And, and, and that, and what you really made it is you really made it human. You really made it a book for everybody. And you really inspired uh, me. Uh, and I think both of us to write it in a way that we were trying to write it to, you know, to our friends to say, if your best friend was here and you had to share what you learned from all these interviews and all these conversations, all these things you read that could help them have the courage to, to do that thing or to survive through the uncertainty that they're feeling, what would you say? And so I think that's really what Susanna brought to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you talk a, a little bit more just about that dynamic? Because I think you're right. There is a tendency to think that, especially, you know, uncertainty, risk, all of that stuff. It's like, oh yeah, that that sounds a little bit like business, but that is just also just a part of life as well. Can you talk about that dynamic? Yeah. 
So actually, and that's kind of been the main thing that in the beginning, Nathan definitely saw the framework of we've got to get these tools out there and we've got to make them really actionable and we've got to give tons of stories from the business world. And I agreed, but I think the dynamic, like Nathan was saying, was I firmly believe, and it's in the science, um, the neuroscience shows we are wired to, to fear uncertainty. It is because it means risk. Like, okay, we haven't experienced this yet. We could die. And, and the reality is being wired in that way creates a situation where we're probably going to avoid it if we have a chance. If we see a path that's more certain, we're going to take it, even if we're not that excited about it, even if it's maybe not the right thing for us. And so I I wanted to write the book to the human inside the manager. And Nathan was like, oh, how does that, what, what will that look like? And as we kind of thought through what it would be and, and kind of changed the tone, I mean, you know, even my mom was like, oh, I can hear his voice, but then I hear yours too. And it blends because we, it was really about, we need to reach the human being because managers are first and foremost humans first. And so even when we teach this in companies, we teach the tools to the individual, and then we have applications and, and frameworks to help them think about it in their career setting, in their team setting, in their specific company issue that they're struggling with. So, Yeah, I really like that. I mean, really, it's about, in a way, there's so much we can learn from the world of innovation and creation and designing and, and all these spheres that could be brought to, to life in general. And that's really what it is, is you know, and we really wrote about personal experiences of, you know, facing up to the unknown. Sometimes those unknowns were, you know, should we leave countries? Should we leave careers? Sometimes those uncertainties were, you know, really significant mental health challenges for our children. And and so all kinds of these aspects of life that everybody faces were like, oh, my gosh, these tools we learned from these innovators are actually useful for this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the themes that I was really surprised, like going into the book, I was really surprised to see, though I, I appreciate it so much, is you talk about curiosity so much throughout the book, which is, uh, at least from my perspective, going into it, it seemed a little bit counterintuitive of like, oh man, I'm going to go into like an uncertainty situation. And uh, and here we find curiosity. I would love just to talk about that dynamic and what even helped you um, just learn to approach, like just the role that curiosity plays in, in facing uncertain situations. You know, to, to to help answer that, I want to follow up on a little bit of what Susanna said. She said, we're wired to fear uncertainty because it's danger. It, it registers as danger. But the great fallacy in that is that every possibility in our lives always came after a moment of uncertainty. Truthfully, think for a moment of something you're proud of, an accomplishment, a relationship, a move, something you did, you at some point had to take a risk. You had to go into the unknown. And so for me, I started wondering about uncertainty and then I began to realize, oh my gosh, uncertainty and possibility are two sides of the same coin. And so to get to your question about curiosity, I think it's really interesting to say, well, for me, and I'll be quiet and let Suzanne answer, but for me, curiosity is kind of like that. It's kind of one of those guides when in a moment of last resort, like in other words, many times when the people we interviewed got stuck, got confused, felt like nothing can move, it was that little getting a little bit curious about what else is possible here that was like that crack in the door to like, oh, I might be able to see that possibility. Mm-hmm. Actually, one of the coolest things, and we write this in the introduction, curiosity 
um, the neurotransmitter for that is dopamine. And so it's actually the way that our brains are wired to kind of negate the effects, the negative effects of uncertainty. And so when we're curious, we're going to keep learning and growing. We're going to stay in the game. We're going to be willing to figure stuff out. And it does. I love how you you said, oh, that's so counterintuitive for uncertainty to get like, because to be curious, you kind yeah. of have to feel relaxed or you have to feel at ease enough that you're willing to be curious. And so I do think it's something, it almost needs to be something that we tattoo on ourselves. Like, okay, stay curious right now. Because the minute we aren't curious, then we're going to shut down options. You know, you know, though, in our conversation, we're kind of tiptoeing around one of the most important ideas in the book, which is what we call transilience, which mm -hmm. is this old word that comes from the field of technology strategy. It means leaping from one state to another. So think about when like a iron ingot like becomes molten ore. It just, it's a phase shift. And in a like manner, there's this moment you can have that we want that we ultimately want to help everybody get to where uncertainty that feels frightening and debilitating can can suddenly you experience this transilient phase shift and you see the opportunity and i and i think kind of curiosity is like one of those levers into that like I know a lot of people for right now are feeling a lot of uncertainty. And, and so they're saying that doesn't feel like possibility to me, but, but then just get like a little curious. Is there any possibility hidden inside this and just hold that curiosity for a long enough time? It, and you might think, Oh, you know, and, and like, so when we were writing this book, you know, we started this long before the pandemic, you know, a decade earlier. And when the pandemic happened, all of my income is teaching and speaking and that disappeared in like five days. It was like gone. And, you know, with kids in school and mortgages and all that kind of stuff. And so I was freaking out and Susanna's like, if you can't apply these tools to help yourself, you don't get to write this book. That's not fair. That's not, you have skin in the game. And so like one example of that is I was doing a lot of worst case scenario thinking and, and just getting curious and, and asking, okay, so what would really happen? If say I did lose my job and we did go bankrupt and I couldn't pay the mortgage, like, would that really be the end of everything? Would it really be, or, or maybe, you know, there'll always be some work I could do and maybe we could move into maybe a little less stressful place to live and, you know, a little more space in the countryside. And, and all of a sudden, like, it started to sound like kind of maybe kind of a cool life path. Like, you know, maybe we'll even live kind of a little close to the coast and, you know, go walk the dog on the beach. Wow. Maybe we should do that instead. So like my worst case scenario, suddenly through a little bit of curiosity, like you start mm. to see other paths and other possibilities. Mm. Yeah. What were some of the, you mentioned one example there in your own personal life. What are some of the other examples that you saw just through your interviews and conversations of people, uh, what they did to, to engage their curiosity longer? Um, so I can't resist here. Okay. So, you know, we did, we did open the book, um, uh, with this statement about we went from being zombies to writing about the oh, opposite yeah. of zombies. Yeah. I, I, I wanted to ask about the zombies yeah. as well, just because I caught that sentence and I'm like, wow, that's a very interesting thing to research. So yeah, let's, let's talk about that first and then we can come so, back. Yeah. So, but, but it's a curiosity story. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, because way back when, so we met in university. We've been married twenty five years. Um, really, a, a a really wonderful love story. But it started because of curiosity, and it was 
back in high school, I was a, I was a nerd, you know, and nerds are great. And I would go just get curious and go look in the library. These are the old days. We didn't have the internet. You had to go into library and look at books. And I'd look at books and read about everything, pirates and other stuff. And, and I found this weird book about zombies. And it was this pseudoscientific study that this guy in Haiti had done. The scientists went to Haiti to see, you know, is there any chemical explanation in which uh, doctor's powders would explain the zombie effect? And he actually had this whole theory about the puffer fish and it has this tetrodotoxin that induces this coma-like state. Anyway, I had kind of done that just curiosity on the side. And we're in... Uh, now, later, a few years later, I'm in university. I'm in this class with this uh, girl who I think is really interesting and unique. Her name is Susanna, but I haven't really had much of a chance to talk to her because she's you know, really intelligent and aloof. And the teacher says, you know, we're going to do research projects, throw up some topics. And people are throwing up like really boring stuff, important but boring, like vegetarianism and euthanasia. And it's like, oh, we all know about that stuff. And so I say zombies and Susanna's like, I don't know. What did you think? Well, I guess it, I could say that it was a curiosity again, because I was like, who? First, I was like, OK, this guy's nuts. And Nathan was a total talker. So he was always raising his hand and always had something to say. I'm a little bit more quiet and reserved. But when he said that, I thought the teacher is going to throw this down. And she wrote it up on the board. Well, because I explained the whole thing yeah, about the tetrodotoxin. So she's like, OK, sure. And, you know, I agree with Nathan that the other topics were kind of um, just old and tried. And the zombie thing just kind of sparkled. And I was like, who is this guy that is thinking he can do this and whatever? And so I signed on. And uh, yeah, the rest is a little bit history. But we've always both really loved curiosity. In fact, sometimes it it kills the cat because we will get <laughs> so obsessed. We'll be like, let's get this thing. And our kids are like, no, they don't want us to look at stuff too much because then we'll take them down a path. And then it's like the yeah, well next two years, it's like, this is our journey. We've got to be on this curiosity thing. But I, I would love to give examples of curiosity. Um, maybe my favorite thing around curiosity would be the school chaos pilots in Denmark, um, which is a business school. And it's really interesting because their whole curriculum and everything is totally different. They actually tell their students, you're not going to, we can't promise you exactly what you're going to learn because it's going to be so self-directed and it's going to matter who's in your group. It's going to matter, you know, on the projects you choose. It's going to depend on who else comes in the path and how it goes. And they, you know, their their first weekend is, uh, actually, it's even before they get admitted, they have a, a weekend where they have to come together and the whole process of getting um, admitted so to be in the school is, just one round after the other of like getting um, assignments. And then all of a sudden it changes and well, they bring specific. the great group leader out. Yeah. Nathan's a better storyteller. So, no, like, so let him no, go no, you it. should. You should. Tell but like they give you an assignment, like how do you transport water in the Sahara? And you're thinking, oh, I have all day with my team to work on this. And then like 30 minutes later, they interrupt you and say, oh, we got to go do a rock climb. And then, you know, you come back and you're just doing it. And then they pull out the team leader and say they're not on your team. So they're like creating all this chaos. And, and uncertainty constantly. But I guess what I would say is, so that's the idea of how they admit people. But once they're there and they, once they've chosen their projects and once they're going into it and they'll, they'll come back to the leaders and be like, wait, like who, who can help us with this question? Like we're getting this, this startup wants to work with us, but they're giving us these, these mandates. We have no idea how to do it. And they just look back on them and they're like, I don't know. 
Like, what do you think? Like, where could you find the information for this? Or do you know anyone? Do you have any networking? Let's talk to the other teams and see. Let's Who could you contact about this? What's in your gut? And they really just keep putting it back on the students. And so again, I mean, the thing with curiosity is it's kind of powerful to say, just get curious about this. But I would say every time when you're willing to go to that place, something comes through, something shows up. And it's one thing I also love. I mean, we didn't get to interview Elizabeth Gilbert, but, you know, the famous author who's read, written Eat, Pray, Love and so many other wonderful books in, in Big Magic. She talks about curiosity as being kind of the, the kinder version of passion because we hear so much about have passion, go after your thing. And a lot of times in uncertainty, sometimes the uncertainty for a person is I don't know what my passion is. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And so it, the field of choice is so huge. So curiosity there is also something that people have learned is enough. Start there. And actually, that's how she wrote her favorite book was after her bestseller, she wrote a book that then was kind of a dud. And then she also wrote a book that at the very end, it didn't come together. It didn't work. And she'd spent years on it. And she was like, what am I going to do? And she decided to trust curiosity and the curiosity was a garden. She's like, well, I have this new house and there's a plot out there and my parents used to do it. Hmm. And she just went from there and ended up writing her very favorite novel that she's ever written because while, she... While, while she was working in the garden, like a few months later, all of a sudden the insight popped into her head about how to fix the story. And then right. she ended up writing it. And then she wrote another book though, yeah. based on her yeah. garden. So yeah. curiosity is truly, it's an, it's a magical source of helping us when we're stuck. It's like, you have to step back and see the bigger picture. And then you kind of see a new portal, I think. Yeah. And it even, it even just made me think, and, and maybe you just on a little bit, like at some point your curiosity is going to, is going to get you to a place to where it's like, oh man, it is going to take a risk or um, it leads you to almost like a dead end or something. Yeah, and so, yeah. And so is it just a matter of like, okay, figuring out where else I'm cur currently curious about, or what would you say? Well, you know, curiosity is a tricky thing and it's tricky to say what's a dead end. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, in my full time work, I teach about innovation and teach about how do you get ideas. And one of the my favorite um, kind of descriptions was actually when Steve Jobs spoke at commencement when I was at graduate school at Stanford. And what he did is he talked about how he took a calligraphy class and how that calligraphy class had absolutely nothing to do with the future of technology. But he said, you know, 10 years later, when they were designing the Macintosh computer, all that calligraphy instruction came back to him and they designed it all into the Mac. So it was the first computer mm -hmm. with beautiful fonts and proportionally spaced fonts and all of that. And he said, he said, and, uh, what is a true lesson? Um, you know, he had strengths and weaknesses, but this was a true thing. He said, you cannot connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect the dots looking backwards. And I think that's very true. And, you know, we're so instrumental in, in particularly in American Western culture, like everything's so outcome driven. You know, sometimes it can be really beautiful to do something and you don't know why you're doing it. I mean, Susanna's doing this hope accelerator. You, you don't know what the outcome is going to do. It's a pure curiosity. But who knows? We'll see where it goes. Yeah. What what's up with the hope accelerator? Well, like a startup accelerator, I'm picturing like, how could we accelerate hope in this world that feels kind of forlorn and despairing right now? So mm -hmm. the first 
element of it is a, a garden. I'm learning about the soil and how to feed the soil and grow things. Um, basically like a closed loop system. It has tons of history. I could talk your ear off about this for like four hours and you'd be like, yeah. never mind. I'm not curious. <laughs> back to Rudolf Steiner yeah. and all that. But what I, what I would like to say back to curiosity and it being a de dead end, one thing that's really powerful about uncertainty is to know that something's a dead end is actually a victory because hmm. it's kind of like worst case scenario. Sometimes people think, oh no, but we're actually scared of finding out that something's not right for us. But how beautiful is it when you really have had the experience where you're like, you know what? I went down that road. I tried this. It's not the thing I thought it was. Rarely is a dead end like we still want it so much and everything's just in our way. Because if that's true, then maybe you just shift or you pivot. But a true dead end is like I you can mourn it. You can grieve it. But now, you know, like, OK, I know what not what's not going to happen and so, again, it's a shift um, towards something else. And you, you're freed up from thinking, I must make this happen. I guess one more thing I would say about curiosity is if you think about it, you can't fake curiosity. Like curiosity comes of itself. And so you can't, if when we say get curious, we're really saying find the thing that you have within you that can be lined up with this problem or this project or this situation. Because again, the most powerful um, way to meet any uncertainty is really when it's coming from something authentic and truly within us. Does that yeah. make sense? And curiosity is one of those things you can't fake. Yeah. Yep. That does make sense. Another thing kind of, I guess, touching on curiosity that I, I want to hear you guys talk about is, um, is, I guess, this idea of unlearning, because, you know, at some point we... In, in our curiosity, we might have our beliefs or ideas of how we think things were going to work either in our, our personal lives or even in business. And then at some point, our curiosity, sometimes it, it maybe it feels like it betrays us because it's like, oh my goodness, I just discovered a new belief and realized that my old beliefs or my old ways of thinking are not current or they do not match reality in that time. And so we have to do some relearning in that. I would love to hear whenever those moments happen to wherever it's like, and again, they could be very emotional too, just depending on how much work and how much time you've invested in that. What has helped the both of you in those times to where you, you go, I can't believe that all, everything that I knew was wrong and I have to re-engage and relearn stuff. Hmm. You know, I, 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 I want to answer a little bit um, based on kind of the framework of the book. So in the book, yeah. what we do in the upside of uncertainty, we talk about, we came across 30 plus tools. So more than 30 tools that we observed these folks using to face uncertainty with courage, both uncertainty they chose, say, I'm like going to do something new, but also the uncertainty that happens to us that we don't like. Uh, you know, we've all experienced that with the pandemic and, and, and we all experience it many times of our lives, but that's a lot of tools. So there's actually four categories of tools. Uh, and we organize those around this metaphor of a first aid cross for uncertainty. And the first arm of that first aid cross, so the first category is this uh, idea of reframing. So not all of them are as soft as that. So there's reframing, there's priming, which is like preparing, there's doing ways to take action that lead to a greater probability of a good outcome under uncertainty and sustaining yourself. But, but what reframing is about is this idea that has a great a deep body of empirical evidence that the way you frame something or the way you describe it changes how you think, decide, and act. So 
There's Nobel Prize winning research that shows that, for example, if I offer you a treatment or anybody a treatment for a disease and, and I give you one that has a 5% chance of failure and one with a 95% chance of success, we all want the 95% chance of success because humans are wired to be loss averse and gain seeking. And, and so that's the big dilemma with uncertainty is we're like, it triggers, oh my, I'm, I'm going to lose, I'm going to lose. And so we we run away from it. And if we can reframe it as a gain, then we can start to see the possibilities in it. Now, how does that tie to unlearning? Well, I think that's a really powerful tool. So I, I will go ahead and share. We One of our children had a, had a very serious uh, set of uh, mental health challenges uh, over the, you know, uh, related to, to COVID. And um, last summer, when we were in the middle of revising this book, last revisions, um, at, we had planned, you know, a fun trip as a couple. And we instead had to cancel all that. And, you know, some of it we couldn't cancel because we couldn't get the money back. And so we were literally at one point, you know, we're just trying every day to keep uh, our, our son alive. And so at one point we're sitting by the ocean in these lounge chairs with him between us, he's fully clothed, uh, you know, with a hoodie and bl you know, black hoodie and high tops. It's hot, you know, and, and, and that was hard. But how do you, how do you approach that summer? And, and in the conclusion of the book, we write about that experience. And, and I give a lot of credit to Susanna because she reframed that whole situation of, we were supposed to be on vacation. We were supposed to be relaxing after two years of just working our brains on this book. And, now we're just giving everything to try to keep this son alive. And Susanna said, we're lucky to have the time to help him, to have the resources to help him. And this is our triumphant summer. And it's triumphant. It, you know, happy is great. Anybody can have relaxing is great. Every week. Yeah. But what about being triumphant? What triumph could we pull out of this situation? And, you know, it was really, really sweet. We went back to that same place just uh, a week ago, and our son, who by every measure looked utterly miserable, you know, we have these pictures of him uh, just at dinner looking miserable. He, When we went back this summer, he said, well, wait, I don't get to go with you guys? That was really fun. And, you know, it was triumphant because not only did he come through, but he felt in a way he had never felt that my parents really love me and they will be there when the bottom falls out. Yeah. Susanna, talk to me about like kind of uh, your, your thoughts on that and going through that, and that reframing process and what helped you with that. You know, uh, one thing I think that's interesting about triumph for me was that it wasn't even that it was our best summer or our favorite trip together, but triumph to me was that, We'd found a way to stay close as a couple um, because a lot of times when you have a kid that's struggling, parents can like polarize. We can be like, you're being too strict or you're being, we shouldn't be spending our money this way. We should just make him, you know, maybe your parents will watch him, you know, but we kept coming back together. So to me, we were triumphant because we, we were close to each other. We really, really focused on him. But also the triumphant part was that we it wasn't done yet. I mean, at the end of the summer, we were not finished with his healing at all. This has just come in. In fact, we went down, the book doesn't tell this, but he went into another um, tricky episode again that was mm -hmm. really difficult because we weren't prepared to redo this again. 
Um, but but in that moment, it was like, look at that we're still moving. In the book, I actually say it's triumphant because look at what we're able to do. We're in the uncertainty. We're in the thick of we don't know how this ends, but we're doing it. And I think a lot of times it's important. And I guess I could even say that's part of unlearning is even though it can feel like this isn't going how I wanted and I don't like this or I thought it was going to be this or that. Instead, it's uh, we are still surviving. Like you almost need to tell yourself you need to look in the mirror and be like, I'm alive. I'm okay." You know, when uncertainty is happening like that. You know, Caleb, if it's. I know we're kind of talking your ear off here. I apologize. No, you're, but... you're great. This is an interview. You're supposed yeah. to be the ones who are talking. Okay. Well, well, I, it, it also made me think of one of the tools we write about in the reframing section, which is called the infinite game. And it yeah. actually came from the work of James Cars, who was a professor at NYU. And he, he wrote this crazy book. I mean, it's really wild to read. But the basic, basic premise is... There are two ways to see life. One is as a finite game and one is an infinite game. And the finite game, which, to be honest, most of us are stuck in, we kind of see the purpose of the game is winning and we see the rules, boundaries, everything is fixed. So think, you know, the classic situation where you're trying to get the promotion or you're trying to get this, you're trying to get that. And and you get really stuck in this, you know, playing to win. And for for finite players, uncertainty is terrifying because it, it gets in the way of of maybe potentially winning or sets you back. And he said, but there's a different way to approach life. And it's the infinite game. And, and the infinite player, they don't play to win. They play for the joy of playing. And they see the rules and the roles and the boundaries as a little bit intangible, playable. We, we could stretch them. We could bend them. In fact, it might be a more interesting game if we change them. And and so when you talk about unlearning, I mean, I I we... I, I, we had some, uh, you know, we kind of had some conservative background growing up and we had some, you know, interesting, you know, changes with one of our, our other uh, children. And we were really struggling to support him until we kind of asked, what's the infinite game? So, so what was I doing? What were we doing? We, we learned a way that a parent is supposed to do things and it was not working. It was harming the relationship with this child who is saying, I need you to love me. I need to support you in my life choices. And it was this moment where we said, what's the infinite game here? And I remember it being like, oh my gosh, you know, it's really just to love this kid. And, you know, I had, I had notions about what a close family was like and that, you know, we should all be together at these times. And, 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 and then I began to play in my mind, like, what if instead the family was like a, beautiful diving board that people could come back to and they could dive off into their dreams and, mm. and they can come back if they want to, they don't have to, you know, and, but it's always there for them. And, and that, that, that infinite game perspective, I think it really helped me unlearn and I continue to use, it. I'm not saying I'm past this, like I still struggle with it, but like learn a different way that has like really healed those relationships and led to really beautiful things at, because we were able to like see it differently. Mm. Yeah, that diving board is such a good. I love. I love that picture of it. Um, well, let's let's move on. You know, we've talked a lot about reframing. <clears throat> let's talk about priming as well, which is kind of like the next stage in that. So, if you want to talk about that and maybe talk about you know a tool or two um, that really has stood out to you know either or both both of you in that. 
Well, I love priming. I love that word because it really is talking about preparation in a in a more subtle way that there are things we can do before we do something that make the outcome better. So priming a wall, you know, if you've done it well, if you tape, but also if you do that pre-coat, you know, your your walls just adhere better. They look silky. They look good. So with um with priming, you know, maybe one of my favorite um, let's see, we're looking over our list too, because sometimes I forget which one's my favorite. We talk a ton. What, what we want to do, Caleb, is we want to tell you new, new stories. Because we keep yeah. talking about riskometers, you know, knowing your risks. And that's yeah. that's an interesting one. But, uh, you know, I want to talk about reimagining resources. Really? Yeah. Well, you, you go ahead. You you tell me. You jump in there with one you like. Okay. Um, you know, I would like to talk about... No, I can talk about personal wheel options too. No, I know, but we talk about that. I would like to talk about made to measure or in French, the face your measure. Yeah. I don't know if you read about that one, but the idea that when we are setting up a life for ourselves or, or facing our careers, again, like the infinite game tool, we might think it has to look a certain way. We might be borrowing what we saw our parents do or what we saw our role model do or mentors and think, okay, how is it? You know, and we're measuring like, oh, they did it like this. Ah, shoot, I did my master's at the wrong place or I took too long. The idea of the face your mesure tool, it, we love the word from French because in, in, in American English, we usually say something that's been custom made. And we think about it of like cabinetry, like a kitchen that was everything was perfectly made for you or a suit or a dress, something made to your measurements. And often we feel like I don't have the money for that kind of life. Like you have to be rich or you have to be famous to get things that are to your own specifications. And really in the in the French, um, the fact that custom things are called made to measure, it just kind of dawned on us one day, like, hey, wait a second. That's actually such a cooler word than custom. Custom doesn't mm. really make sense. Yeah. But made to measure, how could we make our lives more interesting. We talk about um, St Stefan Sagmeister, who's the amazing, quirky, brilliant ad guru, who who basically decided, and he did a TED talk about this, you can watch it, where he said, you know, I was looking at people and they work their whole lives and slave away, and then they take their retirement. And he was like, what if I cut up a retirement, worked, I think he said, seven extra years, but added a slice every seven years or five years and added, took a year sabbatical. And just yeah. let myself do it. And basically, he talks about how that, that experiment worked. And ultimately, every single time those sabbaticals transformed his work when he came out of it. It wasn't like he was just on a beach drinking mojitos or something. He was really figuring out what am I? He was doing curiosity. He was picking a place where he had some interest. And then he would go there and set up and just start feeling it out. And sometimes he made furniture. Sometimes he made T-shirts. Sometimes he, one time he made a documentary about happiness. Like he always was just aware of what his measurements were. And I guess when when facing uncertainty, the, the way we use that as a prime tool is make sure that you start thinking, taking yourself into account, taking into account what are your own interests? What would make you happy? What would make you joyful? And we give a lot of quirky examples of people that we met just over the course of about 10 days during confinement. We had gone, we had a trip to Italy and the borders had opened in Europe and we were able to go down. And I'm not going to go into detail about the different people, but let's just say, regardless of budget or age or um, career, we met so many people that were really living lives 
made to their measurements, that they were joyful and they were happy. And I and I think one thing to for listeners, it's not that you're that it's so weird. It's not that you add like, oh, I always wear pink on, you know, the first day of the month. It's not that stuff. It's stuff that really matters to you. And then you you work around it so that you make sure like, no, this is an important measurement for myself. And we 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 can ask that of our partners in a work setting. You could ask that of your team, like, hey, what are the measurements that would make you sing, that would make you feel alive and want to work? So it's a yeah. cool way to prime prime for uncertainty is making sure that you put in measurements, to, you know, specifications to your own, um, really to give yourself more fuel. What's going to make you feel alive and excited and happy? And if you add those things in, then when you start to do your life under uncertainty, you're, you're, you're it's like it's paying itself back. It's its own yeah. reward. Nathan, did you say that you had uh, an example for Prime? Well, yeah. So uh, one of the tools, um, I was just thinking about this uh, because I was traveling recently, but it's called Personal Real Options. And it actually came out of an interview we did with a gentleman who won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 2016, Ben Fringa. And you know, he, what he really emphasized in the interview is how much uncertainty he faced on his way to creating this breakthrough. And he was kind of like, oh, science, it's all uncertainty. So we asked him, we said, so you have students. How do you teach those students to 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 do well, to be prepared for that uncertainty? He said, well, I always tell them to have two options. So they should have a project that's risky and uncertain, and they should have a project that's a little more certain. He said, because if all you have is a risky option, you will follow that too long. You, you Maybe you should stop that, or maybe you should change course. Whereas if you have two legs to stand on, you're a lot calmer and you're a lot more productive. And, and what he was touching on was a piece of wisdom about how we can prepare ourselves to, to step into the unknown. And that is, it's kind of a myth that you have to kind of go all in, bet everything to be successful. In fact, the empirical research shows that what we call hybrid entrepreneurs that means entrepreneurs who kind of kept their day job and started what they're working on the side are more successful than those who quit their day jobs. Why? Well, because they have more time to figure out, figure it out, and they have less stress while they're doing it. And so the whole principle here is like, how do you set up a life so that you have two legs to stand on so that you can kind of be going forward on something you care about, whatever that may be, but you don't have to go all in on it. Now, my one big caveat on that whole story is that the real danger is that most of us are not going all in on the uncertain risky thing the real danger for most of us is that we're going all in on the safe path and we're not doing a little bit of a personal real option on the thing we care about on the thing that we're curious about on the thing that makes us happy and makes us feel alive and so uh, for many of us i think the message is more gosh, don't just stand on the certain leg, introduce yeah. that thing you care about, do it. Yeah. And it, it's funny, just as I'm listening to you talk and I go, man, that is, that's reframing literally how I'm thinking about it because you don't think about, well, I'm going all in on the safe option. Like you, you don't think of that. You think, oh, I'm, I'm doing the wise move and it, it will be okay. But yeah. I, I love that. Um, let's talk about do as well, which is kind of the next one. And so um, maybe Suzanne, maybe if you want to get us started with with that and kind of a, an exercise or, or a tool that um, really stood out to you in that section. Yeah. 
Um, so basically my favorite tool in that section is, I think it's the first one we discussed, but it's about activating and unlocking. Mm. And the rest of the chapter really does have more uh, technology, strategy, science. It's stuff straight out of Nathan's uh, dissertation. But activate and unlock was this idea that came to us when we were trying to figure out the language for how, you know, how do you start doing stuff when it's uncertain? And Nathan kept calling you, you it managing. Throw, yeah, throw, you can throw me under the no, bus. But, Go for uh, it. Yeah. Because we talk about MBAs. It's a management yeah. of business. So it was all, how do you manage, manage uncertainty? uncertainty. Yeah. And, 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 you know, that was something that entrepreneurs would say, or innovators would say, Oh, I love uncertainty, but I don't like that word because the word their experience, they don't like the word manage. their experience of it was that you can't. That's the thing about uncertainty is we can't force it. We can't muscle it. We can't control it. We can try. That's when it goes wrong. And so activating and unlocking is a term we got from Roberto Burley Marx. He's a Brazilian. It was during the 1950s Brazilian landscape architect who was studying in Berlin, but Brazilian. And he went to an exhibit of these beautiful native plants from his own Brazil and, but they were in these kind of Bauhaus cement planters. And it just looked so weird because it was this gorgeous foliage and crazy colors and wild, um, growing, beautiful things just kind of, you know, managed into these planters. And he, it hit him and how he ended up doing his whole design uh, of everything he did. And he did tons of gardens and botanical places. And he loved plants so much. He would stop his car and go. A lot of plants are actually named after him. He loved horticulture and just um, the beauty of the natural world. But his his creation and his gift was this idea of activating and unlocking the potential of the thing. So with the plant, letting it be itself and, and working around it, letting it, um, designing something that gave joy and expression to in its fullest way. And so there's so many beautiful examples of, of people who have figured out how to handle things in this way of gently coaxing out what's already there, activating and unlocking what is already in, even in the uncertainty. Um, one of our favorites is a, an artist uh, and friend of ours who actually designs museums and exhibits. And he he talks about how whenever he's given a predicament, um, and maybe you could tell yeah, the for story. example, he was, uh, you know, the there was Grand this Palais. old site in, oh, that was a No, good tell one. the Grand Palais. Oh, the Grand Palais. So, so the idea is how do you act, rather than trying to manage and control uncertainty, how do you activate and unlock what's already there? And there were so many examples of this we saw in education and business. But this one, um, his name is Adrian Gardere, and he was given this challenge. There was this exhibit at the Grand Palais in Paris. So the Grand Palais is this huge building with these beautiful glass ceilings, very famous old building. And it would have been an exhibit about China and it had all these like shipping containers and this big dragon weaving around it. And it was, it was a very expensive exhibit. And so the, uh, the people put it on to try to kind of recoup some of the costs and create these five like life scale models to sell to art collectors and nobody bought them. They weren't buying them. And, and what he said is, he said, they brought him in to say, like, okay, so how do we fix this problem? And he said, he spent some time with it, and he was looking at it, and he thought, well, it's a very accurate model and all that. But you know what's missing? What's missing is Paris. What's missing is the sun, the way that it traverses the these panes of glass in the ceiling of the Grand Palais, and how the shadows progress from morning till night. 
And what he created is a, is a, a lighting system that mimicked the play of light as the sun rises and then crosses the sky over the day. And it just creates this incredibly dynamic experience of this art exhibit. And, and it, it was such a beautiful example of just getting curious as we talked about, but then he applies that in whatever he does. So like he redid this old exhibit in Narbonne in France they had these old stones that had carvings on them that'd been through like, like four empires, you know, they'd like been put in buildings and taken apart and put in new building, taken apart and blown up and torn apart. They had this incredible history, about how do you get people interested in rocks? And, you know, they were just sitting on shelves, really boring, you know, and, and, and so he said, you know, I just went in and I says, how do I activate and unlock what's there? And he said, what's there is there's some history hidden in these stones for people to discover. And what he created was this whole wall that you could recreate. You actually has a robotic arm that you move the different stones, these ancient stones around these little platforms. You can reassemble them and it shows you how they would appear in the Roman Empire or in another empire, or, you know, and it, and it just... It, it it just made it fascinating. And so I, I I think it's just, you know, this question and and it sounds a little abstract. Maybe somebody from the business world is saying, well, I don't know if that's true, but, but I can give you examples of organizations that where they focus on how do we activate and unlock the curiosity, the creativity, the potential of the people that are here and they get great rewards out of that. Yeah. And, and the last section is sustain. Can we talk? Talk to me a little bit about that and a practice that um, that stood out to you about that. Well, sustain is that that really critical part that might need to come into play even before you've started. And it's kind of linked with reframing because sustaining is about when the things have, that you thought you were doing were working and they stop working or you get mm -hmm. to that dead end or you get to the moment where you have to shift or maybe you get to the moment where it's working, but you are needing endurance and you're feeling like you don't have the energy. Or maybe you thought your life was going great and then a pandemic happens and you lose all your work in five days. <laughs> yes. Any scenario where it's like, I don't know how to deal with this. And so um, to make it easier for people to remember the category of tools, because like we have in each of those arms, there's like eight or 10 and in the sustain, there's several of them again, but what we did is we broke them up and put them around three parts that we feel are critical. And because and we, we thought people can remember the three things and the three are emotional hygiene, reality check, and magic. So emotional hygiene is kind of like what it sounds like. Physical hygiene is knowing like, oh, this cut needs stitches, but this one just needs a bandaid and some Neosporin. Emotional hygiene is something we don't really learn until recently. Like you know, even our parents, that generation, no one had life coaches. No one was going to talk about issues. People didn't really know how to look at an emotional wound. And let's face it, emotional hygiene is needed every single day. Oh, yeah. Our feelings get hurt. Maybe even it's our own negative self-talk. We have so many negative beliefs uh, that we just that are on autopilot in our head in the background all the time. And emotional hygiene is really tools around helping us take those things seriously, knowing how to just be aware of them and then how to gently care for them and, and get the help. Sometimes we need expert help. Sometimes we might need medication. Sometimes we might just need to know, oh my gosh, this is a normal part of any uncertainty. We talk about roller coasters and waves that they come and there's a peak and then we fall into a valley and you know that's normal. Nothing's wrong with you. So that's emotional hygiene. 
uh, reality check is really great. Maybe you want to talk about that. It's really just, uh, to be honest, you know, this is a section that obviously draws draws heavily on the field of psychology. It's really that cognitive approach to talking yourself through things. So, you know, I actually hinted at this. I talked about um, what we often do and under uncertainty is we tend to think in binary terms, like, you know, everything's going to blow up and it's going to be the worst thing possible. So worst case scenario or not. And we don't actually like unpack that worst case scenario. And what innovators will do instead is they'll do things like think in terms of many outcomes. What's the probability of those many outcomes? So back to my case, lose all my work in five days. You know, what's really the probability that I'm going to go bankrupt? It's probably not so big. And then let's unpack that scenario where I go bankrupt you know, actually, we could recreate our lives. We could do different things. You know, it's it, it's not like I'm going to be like thrown into a, a dungeon never to see the light of day again, you know. And and so um, it's kind of walking yourself through those things. And then the last one is uh, magic. by, And that was a risky thing to write about in a book. Uh, you know, I'm, yeah, I was surprised. I was surprised whatever you, you don't expect to see magic in, in, in a book like this. But yeah, no, it, keep, keep going. Yeah, well, we didn't mean like Harry Potter yeah, kind yeah, of yeah, stuff. Yeah. What we meant is <laughs> to to recognize at the heart of uncertainty, there's there is possibility, and and it can be. How do you open yourself up to those moments, those leaps of inspiration, those fortuitous, unexpected connections, those those coincidences, the 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 luck, the serendipity that you can't explain, that you could actually like prepare, you could actually do more to have a greater possibility that happen. You can't control it. But, you know, one of my mentors at Stanford, uh, Tina Seelig, she talks about this luck is like, it's like a sail and wind. You don't control when the wind blows, but you can hoist your sail. And so one of my favorite tools in there is as if. And um, it actually has a very deep philosophical history, this idea that we live our lives according to stories, whether we recognize it or not. So Hans Weyringer was this you know philosopher and he said, you know, we all live according to stories like, for example, the atom. Nobody's seeing what an atom is. It's a story you use to organize the world. Uh, it doesn't even really matter if it's true or false in a way. And and Christopher Hitchens picked up on that idea. He's a was a contemporary philosopher. And he talked about it as a tool for a political resistance. He talked about Vaclav Havel, who uh, when Czechoslovakia was, sorry, when the Czech Republic was, um, it, it was overtaken by a dictatorship and he could no longer resist uh, in the way that he had thought, he he wrote a book called "The Power of the Powerless" and said, "We propose living as if we were members of a free society, and to maintain that attitude for years, and that it can result in change." And 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 that all sounds really abstract. So maybe I can make it concrete with a personal story. So yeah. uh, when when I finished my PhD, um, academics is a really snooty business, and the idea uh, here is that when you step down from the top tier to say another school uh, that's not in the top tier, you never go back up. You never climb the ladder up. So um, we had been at Stanford and we'd taken a job at a wonderful school near Susanna's family. Uh, And then we got invited, this very lucky invite to come do a visiting professor thing in France. And what we did not expect is that we would fall totally in love with it. And it felt like like our soul's home. Like it, it, it shocked us. It surprised us. So suddenly... I wanted, and Susanna wanted, we wanted to be in France. and But the problem was, well, how do I get a job? 
And there was a university, it's the university I'm at now currently, I'll just give you a spoiler alert, INSEAD. We were <laughs> in the town where INSEAD is, it's in this little uh, town just southeast of Paris. It's a beautiful grand chateau there. It was November, we were there, we were in the gardens, it was really misty and foggy. And I felt miserable because I thought, I have fallen in love with France. And here I am in Fontainebleau, in the very town where the school is. They don't know I exist and they will never know I exist. Now, that's a really negative story. Right? That needed emotional hygiene. That needed emotional yeah. hygiene. Yeah. Big time. Uh, but we hadn't written this book yet. No, but I actually, I was trying to do it. On yeah, you were trying. You were, you were yeah. doing your best. But, but when we came back from the trip at the end of December, I said, well, I want to live as if this, this dream could, could come true. And it was a really interesting very subtle living as if, because it actually had two sides to it. One side of it was we need to live where we were then and live as and, and enjoy it as much as we could to take advantage of all the beautiful things that it had. Well, and and <clears throat> live as if we were going to be there forever. And live as if so we might we be there forever. We so didn't waste time. We didn't, we didn't like think we're out of here. Yeah. Or live in a perpetual, like, you know, kind of state of you know, kind of purgatory or something like that. So we we really lived as if we were going to be there forever. But at the same time, I lived as if it was possible for me to do enough research. Again, I'm a professor uh, to to get that job. And I'm telling you, there were rocky moments on that road. I had a professor at INSEAD tell me to my face, you do not have enough of what we would want. Basically, you're not what we're looking for. That's pretty harsh, right? Mm -hmm. Now, fast forward to 2015, and we are driving into town and I have, I am a faculty member, a research track. And now I'm tenured, by the way. And that's like five years, right? It felt like forever. It felt like forever. But looking like back, it. I actually feel kind of embarrassed about it. It but was so short. It, it was so short. Yeah. But, 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 but it was that duality of living as if the thing we were really in, happened. let's enjoy it to the very most we could because we might not be here forever, but let's live it the to our, the maximum we can in terms of really valuing what it is. And I'm going to work and live as if I'm the quality of scholar who could be in that place. And and we really, to be honest, got the best of both sides of that equation as a result. Yeah. Well, I want to be respectful of both of yours time, but if you do have time, I do have one last question. Sure. Uh, that I wanted to ask you. So I would I would love to hear um, from the both of you of you know conducting this uh, this research project of writing this book. I would love to hear whether it be a conversation, a tool that you came across, or just something that you discovered through the research. Um, what was most personally impactful for you in terms of that? You know, conversation, interview, whatever that is. I would just love to hear one of the, what's one of the things that made the greatest impact on on you personally. You know, may, and maybe. Susanna, starting with you, and then uh, we can, you know, go with Nathan. I feel like there were so many interesting things. I don't have a favorite, and I don't even have yeah. a most impactful. Um, maybe the most interesting takeaway for me has been how grateful I am that I that we had these tools kind of while we were going through the pandemic, because a lot of weird, wacky stuff did end up happening to us. And so I think the thing that's felt the most exciting for me is truly that these tools work, that we're like using them on a daily basis. Because, yeah. you know, I've never written a book before. Nathan has. But I, you know, when I when I thought about wanting to do this, I thought, OK, but I have to really believe in this. And um, 
I'm kind of, I'm struggling. Why don't you go and then maybe I'll come up. Well, you know, I I will say for me personally, uh, so I live in a world uh, because again, I'm a professor in a business school where everybody wants to know what are the three takeaways? What are the top two things I should do? What's, you know, and um, the one thing that really struck me and shook up my worldview was an interview we did with a gentleman named David Hanmeyer Hansen. He's a legendary entrepreneur. He created Ruby on Rails and Basecamp. And and he really taught, he really crystallized for us for something, crystallized something that we'd kind of heard in some other interviews. But it but we we summarized it this way. Is there a way you could go into uncertainty where you couldn't fail? Uh, that wow, that would be a big promise, right? Because the nature of uncertainty is you're going to fail. You're going to have face. You can't know in advance. So you're going to have setbacks. You're going to make wrong turns. But but what the principle is, the tool is called values over goals. And, and what Hanmeyer uh, mm-hmm. Hansen said to us, he said, listen, when you go into uncertainty, something doesn't happen because you set a goal. And he actually used some pretty hard, harsh language. He's like, goals are goals are bullcrap. He's like, I, he said, you can set them. And, and you know, this was hard for me. This is like, a, you know, telling an American that like yeah. goals don't matter. That's like crazy. You know, like that's you're saying the sun doesn't rise or something like that, you know. But what he's trying to say is if you, you say you're an entrepreneur and you set a goal to hit 10 million in year two, he said it doesn't happen because you set a goal. You don't control how the market reacts to it. Yes, you need to work hard and maybe a goal will get you working hard and all that. But he said instead, when you go into uncertainty, focus on what are my values and how could I achieve those values? He said, for me, I've spent the last two years and a couple million dollars building a product that may or may not succeed. But my value was I want to write, write great software. I want to treat my people well and, and work ethically with the marketplace. And he says, even if that product fails, I will feel great because I achieved my values. I learned all this stuff by writing really good software. I could use it in my other projects. I treated my people well and I was ethical with the marketplace. And and I had a very personal experience with this, again, uh, because pandemic changed everything. Again, we've been working on this for a long, long time. I'd already been talking to the editors at Harvard about publishing this book before the pandemic. Pandemic happens and what happens? Every guru in the world is suddenly grounded off their planes, sitting at home, thinking about what they're talking about uncertainty because that's what they're all feeling. And I'm yeah. like, you know, what do professors worry about? We worry we're going to get scooped. Somebody's going to steal my idea, you know? So I'm getting all anxious about it. And Susanna's like, what are you doing? Like what focus on your values, mm-hmm. write a book that would really speak to your friends, write the best you could do, do the best work you can do. And that will be enough. And you know what? There's other people who are going to write about uncertainty. That's okay. We need many, many voices. And you know, she was absolutely right. When I focused on achieving my values, the stress fell off my shoulders and we wrote a way better book. And so focus on your values rather than your goals. I think that's a good way to end. But I will actually, my favorite thing has been the reception the book's getting. Yeah. to be honest, because we've gotten a few reviews that made me, I didn't even cry because it was too intense to read like how much it's helping people. Yeah. And so I guess I, I just feel like we were kind of conduits. We we kind of were, we were lucky enough to have the conversations we had and to to figure out the framework and make it in a way that people are able to like, you know, get it and go, oh, I could do this. I think we're making uncertainty, taking the sting mm-hmm. and the venom out of it just by saying, guys, there's an upside. 
you know, because we all know the downsides. We all we all have felt the downsides of uncertainty. We all do. It's the first thing you feel because it's that wiring. But so I think that's the most shocking thing is that it's helping people. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like I don't yeah. believe in the work, but I do. So, yeah, values, values over goals. There's an yeah. upside to uncertainty. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I know that a lot of people who are listening are, are going to find it very helpful, too. And so where's the best place for people to go to, you know, pick up the book, The Upside of Uncertainty, and keep up with the both of you as well? Yeah, so actually we've created a website, theupsideofuncertainty.com. Uh, and uh, because we want to make the tools available to people, you don't have to go buy the book. But of course, we do love it if you buy the book because... Um, that it's not that we make money off it, it's that the publisher will publish the next thing. Yeah. Um, but we're also creating the asynchronous course will be there. There's a description of the tools that are there. Um, yeah, there might. I mean, we want to make a community around this, actually. Really, there are a lot of people that were in workshops with us at, from the beginning. And one of the cool things, too, is I think it transformed their feeling around uncertainty so much that they were like, we want to be ambassadors for this. Like, could we do like we asked a question on a survey. If you could consult this, would you? And like 85% were like, yeah, we'd be, we'd join up we'd to help coaches. teach it. We're like, wow. Yeah. People, cause you know, you want to spread it on. You want to pass right. on the hopefulness of it. So yeah, go to, go to the upside of uncertainty.com. The upside of uncertainty. Yeah. Or you can go to uncertainty possibility, you know, two sides of the same coin, uncertaintypossibility.com. That also works too. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much for being on the podcast. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I know that people are going to um, just take a take a lot away from it. So thanks again for being on the podcast and just thanks for doing the work as well. Thank you, Caleb. Thank you, Caleb. So coming out of that conversation, there's really three takeaways that are at the top of my mind right now. So much of our conversation revolved around curiosity and how it's through our curiosity and our engagement of that, that can help us better wade through our uncertainty and better explore and um, work through our, un our uncertainty. And learning to become curious about I guess what we're what we're curious about and I guess becoming more curious about what we're interested in and I I love what uh, Susanna was saying about choosing curiosity over passion as well and how it's in looking at our curiosities following our curiosity that can help us identify often what we're passionate about or sometimes can create the passion and as I, and I think related to that is what we were talking about as it pertains to reframing as well and sometimes how our curiosity can lead us to places that we didn't expect or that we didn't anticipate and one of the things that can just make that so incredibly challenging is whenever you encounter a a new belief or a new idea and it makes you rethink everything that you have learned up until this point, which can be very scary as well. And learning how to reframe that experience and help reframe that uncertainty, that that can be an opportunity to grow moving forward. And it's so much easier to, to say that because my mind just goes to the emotion that can be found in that. 
And it's often in those emotional experiences that can just be incredibly, it could be incredibly difficult to work through that, or at least that has been my experience in it. And the last thing is what Nathan was talking about towards the end of choosing values over goals as well. And realizing the, the agency that that gives us, the the power that that gives us, the, um, yeah, I guess agency is probably the best word for it, but it helps us, I guess it helps us take back control and help us realize what what are we in control of? Well, we could be control of our values and, and living out our values in that to the best of our ability. We can't always control what goals we're going to hit or what goals um, we're going to accomplish or whether or not we're going to be able to accomplish something. However, we can do that with our values. And so I absolutely love um, just that illustration. I really just enjoyed this conversation as well and would highly recommend picking up the book and, and check out their website as well. They're so generous of giving so many of these exercises um, for free on, on their website. And it's generosity like that that I think it's important to reward through things like like buying the book and, and getting getting that because we need more people like that in, in the world who are just trying to create uh, create a better world, create a better place. And so... Yeah, I think that's all that I have for today. I do want to say thank you to Nathan and Susanna for being on the podcast today. Thank you to Sam Massey for creating the music for the podcast. Thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. And again, if you have anything that you would love us to cover on the podcast, please let me know at learnerscornerpodcast at gmail.com. And that's all that I have for today. And so my name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.